reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. Good morning. Thank you, Jake. Um, Jake actually read the whole chapter, chapter 2 of Philippians, so it didn't even take that long. Um, The book of Philippians altogether is not that long, but there is a lot of content in there. Um, So welcome to each and every one of you this morning. Uh, I hope you are here to, to learn, to worship God, and to see what what he may have for us this morning. I want to start off uh, this morning, I just want to do a little bit of a historical prison facts and a recap on the church of Philippi and Paul's imprisonments. Prisons in Roman times were not the same as our modern day prisons are today, like correctional institutions or facilities. They functioned differently. They were used as temporary holding places for the criminals or individuals, whether due to a major or minor offense, until their fate could be uh, further decided on. For those that were privileged enough to be allowed a trial in court, they would have to wait until the trial date before they would learn of their fate or sentencing. For some, this could take a long time, even years, especially if the charges were political. Our prisons today are used once the individuals have had their trial date or court date and the judge sentences them, the criminal, to X number of years in prison so that they can serve their time or pay their debt to society. Rome did not have those kinds of long-term prisons. In the days of Jesus, in the days of Paul, the sentencing or the punishment was never then a longer term sent back to prison. People didn't get life sentences in prison as a means of payment to society. For smaller offenses, for smaller offenses, the punishment was things like fines, beatings, or forced labor. And for more serious offenses, like at times for being a Christian, it was often torture before the relief of death through either stoning, impaling, burning, crucifixion, or if you were lucky, it was a quick death like a beheading. The prisons themselves were completely filthy, dark and hideous, underground dungeons the size of a small room. There was no segregation of races or genders or separation by individual cells. Rather, groups were often chained together, sometimes locked in stocks, The prison carried ongoing echoes of the cries of the prisoners who were constantly being tortured, either by the prison guards as well as the prison mates, especially for women or those that that were physically weaker. You can imagine that very bad things would happen to them. The prisoners were not fed or clothed by a government system. If you were going to be clothed or fed as a prisoner in those days, it was going to be by the things that friends and family brought to you. The whole system was intentionally designed to be a place so vile and evil, so cruel, that it was worse than death, all to discourage crime. 
This specifically is the environment in Paul's first, second, and third imprisonments. With a small ex exception in the change during the time that he spent his second prison term, uh, two years out of that term he spent in Rome, during which he was under a type of house arrest. Paul writes at least four known New Testament epistles, including Philippians, at this time from a prison in Rome. Writing to the Philippians, he likely reminisced during his first imprisonment, which occurred in Philippi. And it was Timothy and Epaphroditus. They were the ones that provided the food and the clothes to Paul through the gifts of the Philippian church. And even though Paul talks about the sorrow he did feel, it is quickly faded by the joy that is brought back the moment he turns his attention to Christ. And in the Philippian church, it was the first church that was ever planted in Europe during Paul's second missionary trip, where he had just come to Derb and Lystra with Silas and the crew, and they met Timothy there. Timothy joined them, and a little later, they met up with Luke, and the amazing story made short, they end up in Philippi by the Holy Spirit's leading. And Lydia, she appears to be one of the church's first members there, her and her household. And they had no church building, no synagogue, so they met at the river and they worshiped there. It is during this first visit that Paul plants the church. And at this visit, that's where he cast out the demon from the fortune-telling girl. And it was this act that, got, that caused uh, Paul and Silas to be arrested and jailed for the first time, at least that we know of. And this is what happened, Acts 16, 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped naked and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The inner cell was like a dungeon beneath a dungeon. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And thus, we have the second known household belonging to the church of Philippi. Paul's second recorded arrest was in Jerusalem and was prophesied beforehand in Acts 21, verse 11. But even with the warning, Paul was faithful 
to, the, to be obedient to God, and he still carried on his travels to Jerusalem. Because of the fake outrage and uproar of the Jewish leaders against Paul, he was arrested in Acts 22-24. And again, amazing story made short. From Jerusalem, Paul was brought to Caesarea, where he was imprisoned for at least two years. This was his second imprisonment. And then he was moved on to Rome, which we see at the end of Acts 28-30. Now Paul stayed two full years on his own rented lodging and welcomed all who came to him. This was an additional two years in Rome. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. During this two-year period of his second imprisonment in Rome, Paul's condition seemed to be improved a bit in that he was under this house arrest. This means he is still confined to a jail. but likely a jail in or around the Praetorium, which would have been something like a judgment hall. The conditions here weren't quite so vile as the underground prisons, but he would still have been chained to guards or to a structure. His need for clothing and food was still entirely dependent on others bringing it to him, or perhaps others bringing him the money to pay for his physical needs, which likely is what is meant by Paul having to pay his own rented lodging. Now, Paul is writing this Philippian epistle, and the church at this time, the Philippian church, had become in so many ways a model church, one of the best examples that we have in the New Testament of what a church ought to be. And indeed, they had much to be proud of in the way that they had conducted themselves. But Paul also does not relent in asking them to still be encouraged and to push forward, to continue in good works and keep striving onward and upward. Paul was released after this trial um, for a short time and during which he possibly visited the Philippians as he alluded to in, in longing to do so in his letter to them. But he was arrested again a third time, and tradition has it that he was beheaded in Rome. What we get to read here today is a letter that was written by this man in prison and safely brought from that prison to the church in Philippi by a man named Epaphroditus. And it's because of him that we actually get to read these scriptures and know the more of the word of God. Before we continue, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning I pray that you, would, that you would fill us with your spirit. Father, that you would ever, ever open up our hearts and our minds to understand and to lean into and listen intently to the truth that you have to speak this morning. If you have anything to say, Father, I pray that you would speak through me, speak through your word, and that it would cause us to change, to change in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we love you and worship you, in the way that we treat one another, the way that we live in humility, counting others as greater than us and serving others faithfully as you have called us to do. And whatever that may look like today, Lord, in our time, Father, I pray that you would instill in us 
a heart, draw our hearts in sincerity that we would be the kind of seed that has fallen on the good ground, that does not wither, that does not get choked, but that produces much fruit. Father, thank you for this morning, for this opportunity for us to come and gather and worship so freely. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Continuing in our series of Philippians, I want to read to you one commentary that states that the chief theme in Philippians is encouragement, and hopefully we will all leave here today being encouraged in some way, inspired to strive for better, onwards and upwards. Paul wants to encourage the Philippians to live out their lives as citizens of a heavenly colony, as evidenced by a growing commitment to service to God and to one another. This is love God and love your neighbor, right? The way of life that Paul encourages was revealed uniquely in Jesus Christ, as was also evident in the lives of Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, even while in prison. I agree with that statement. That's why I put it in here. Now, as Abe Berg last week continued off of Gavin Michael's uh, sermon from the Sunday before, so it continues today into this week because at the start of chapter 2, we see an image of not only what we are to imitate, but who we are to imitate. The mind of Christ, as this section is sometimes referred to, we see, first and foremost, the greatest example of what a model of humility and service looks like with Christ. And through the, throughout the epistle, a bit in chapter 1 and more so in chapter 3, Paul uses his own exemplary life as a second example of a humble, Christ-centered, and service-centered life. And lastly, Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples 3 and 4. Each of these men lived as a Christian ought to. Not perfectly, but as they ought to. Each and every one of them in persecution, arrests, imprisonments, tortures, and martyrdom. With the exception of Epaphroditus, his death, we don't have a lot of details on that. So we don't know how he died. But from what we do know of his character, he would have welcomed a martyr's death if it meant glory to God. In chapter 1-5, Paul is thankful for the Philippians and counts them as partners in the gospel from day one to the present day and considers them partakers with him in grace, in imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, how are they, when Paul is the one imprisoned, how are they partakers with him in imprisonment? And it is by the way of them sending Epaphroditus to him with gifts, including food and clothes. The Philippian church had been an ongoing spiritual, physical, and financial support to Paul's ministries long before they ever sent Epaphroditus. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 15. But in Paul's more dire time of need, they do not disappoint. And this is why I think remembering the backdrop of the cruel prison environment is so important because it shows that the calling of a humble service to Christ and to others is something that is not only done in words, but to be fulfilled in action as well. Not only in the best of times, but especially in the worst of times. 
Paul's calling brings with it power and proof of the truth in the words through action. Actions speak louder than words. If you were a criminal or an individual, because not, not all individuals in the prison, like Paul, were actually criminals. But if you were a criminal or an individual in prison, and your only hope and means of survival were that someone would bring you food, there were no freely, free daily rations by a public system. Your, your survival depends on others. Who would be willing to do this for you? Your family, your friends? Can you imagine just today, our closest prison is the one located in Windsor. Can you imagine today, one of us in prison, and every day if they're going to eat, you have to bring them food. When they need clothes, you have to bring it to them. Think of the burden that this would be. Some of you are going like, wow, they're going to get pretty skinny. <clears throat> now, if you were arrested on some scandalous illegal activity, like being a Christian in such times and places that it was illegal, and then, of course, whoever brought you food, they must be a Christian as well. And since it's illegal to be a Christian, then why not arrest them as well? If they're not a Christian, at least they're a sympathizer to their cause. And so if you're the one bringing the food, you start to begin to realize the problem in this. There was a great risk in this. And often, you had to bribe the jailers or the guards to be able to visit or sneak food or clothing in or whatever the needs were at that time that they needed. But the, it was a matter of life and death to those who were in prison. And this was the greatest challenge at times, trying to care for those you loved who were in prison. But in addition to that, how do family and friends care for someone when, like Paul, who is from Tarsus, is dragged off some 2,000 kilometers away in a prison in Rome. When everyone we know and love is here, and an individual is dragged the equivalent distance of here to Mexico, and that's where they sit in prison, and we don't know anybody there, and we're all here, and there are no trains, planes, and automobiles to travel in. Travel alone would take weeks, if not months, to get there, and then we don't know how long the individual is going to be in prison because we don't know when their trial date is going to be held. And the perils that you would face merely in trying to travel the distance to bring them their food, let alone just by the time you get there to also be in prison. And this effort seems to be the thing that nearly cost Epaphroditus his life. This is why Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, starting in 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Listen to this. This is the context in which Christ is speaking. 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you did it for me. This is the context. This is taking care of the family of Christ. So maybe you ask, well, what if you don't risk your life or what is needed to take care of those who are in prison, who need food, clothes, water? Well, there's an answer for that. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, will also, they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In John 12, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Whoever loves his, who, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, whether in prison or in free, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The lie of the devil and of sin will be to make you believe that as a Christian, you actually have the option not to. Jim Elliott, a missionary in Ecuador, he is known for his famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let's think of how that conversation is going to go in a family or in a church. Who will go? Who do we send with our care package? knowing full well that most certainly this individual, we will probably not see them again either. And afterwards, who's next? Who's going to bring the next care package to them? I heard a famous preacher once say, and I will paraphrase what he said, don't think that you will be one to lay down your life in some extra extraordinary noble way like this, if you are not today already in freedom, laying down your life in an extraordinary way to your friends and family, your wife or husband. And this is what I am urging all of us here today to do. In our current freedom, 
Let's lay down our lives in extraordinary ways that exemplify the models that are given to us in the lives of Christ, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Whatever that currently looks like today in our situations, let's do that. Let's serve one another. In Rome, Paul needed to be cared for in this manner. And it was Timothy and Epaphroditus again, with the help of the Philippian church that stepped up to the plate. Today, according to Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors Ministries, it is one in every 2.5 countries that, are, that have high to extremely high persecution. And Canada and the US are not among those in that list. Things like this are a far greater reality in the majority of the church population today than they are to us. It is hard for us to be able to relate to this but they would clearly understand this context far better. In the mind of the four men given to us as examples here in chapter two, a humble Christ-centered life of service meant, and we, we recap from Philippians 1.20, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The crucial thing was not life or death, Merely that God be glorified in the ways that I live, whatever happens, even in death. Just as Christ was only concerned about glorifying the Father, even in his death. Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 27. Only conduct yourselves in a man manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This is all recapped in Romans 14, 7. Paul says, for we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And therefore, chapter 2 starts off with a new appeal to the church for spiritual unity because of what we just had in chapter one, to be united in mind, love and spirit, capital S, with one purpose. And this is how you do it. Don't be selfish, be humble. Stop looking out for only your interests. Look out for others' interests as well. Live as citizens of heaven should live, Work without grumbling or disputing. Be blameless. Such is the mind of Christ and should therefore also be our aim. Christ-centered means caring for the things that Christ cares about, which means our brothers and sisters and their dire needs, regardless of the circumstances or the consequences. Philippians 2.1, and Jake read this already, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of Christ. This is what, this is Paul writing it, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God telling us today, this is how we are to act. This is how we are to live. Christ, our first example of how to follow in achieving this. So we know what we're supposed to do. How do we achieve this? Chapter 2, verse 6. Christ, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave up his rights his comforts, his privileges, to take on a lower servant position, a position that was beneath him. And secondly, he didn't have to. It was a free choice of his. Thirdly, he would have been justified to hold on to his superior position. Fourthly, he humbled himself to obedient service even though it meant humiliation and a treacherous death. And number five, all of this done, not thinking of himself, but of the Father. And each of these traits in their own way are also exemplified in the life of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, looking, not, looking out not only for their own interests, but foremost the interest of Christ and others. It is human inclination to think that if only my neighbor were a bit more worthy of my selfless acts of service, then I would do it. And I can definitely sympathize with the temptation to think and feel that way. But if we are to imitate Christ in the attitude and actions that he had, then we need to look at the way he thought. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we, are st we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the paraphrase. While you and I are unworthy of receiving any act of kindness, Jesus Christ performed the most humble, selfless act of service that anyone ever could for us. And that was to receive the ultimate death penalty in our place. So following the example he gives of Christ, Paul moves on in his letter, and at verse 19 he gives us the next stand-up example. Timothy, in verse 19, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Remember the parable of the sower, written in all, all the Gospels except John, and the seed that fell on the path that was quickly trampled and eaten by birds, 
the seed on the stony ground that had no deep foundation, no, no foundation to dig in its roots and then receive no moisture. And after some trials and tribulations, it withered. But up to that point, it seemed pretty good before it withered. And the seed among the thorns seems to be get, getting better yet. In fact, for a while, this seed that rep represents some people means they appear to be genuine Christians. It takes a while for the thorns to grow up strong enough to choke the plant, but once they do, the plant is left revealing that it doesn't have any fruit or grain. Mark 4, 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In Paul's third and last imprisonment, he writes his second letter to, to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.9, Do your best to come to me soon. For Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So perhaps it is with some of us, not knowing what is truly inside until we have been tested to see if the faith is genuine. And so I ask, I want you to ask yourselves, what desires or interests of your own are you pursuing that is so hindering the work of Christ in us. You know, there's that saying, I remember it used to be spoken a lot, check yourself before you wreck yourself. And that rings true. Philippians 2.22, but you know, Paul going on about Timothy, but you know of his proven character that he served with me in furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I know how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. Of those around Paul at this time, similar to what his last imprisonment would be, only Timothy is of the same spirit and mind as Paul, to be genuinely concerned for, those, for the welfare of other Christians. Paul knows, he knows his character because it has been proven by the genuine, it, it has been proven to be genuine through the trials and the tribulations like a son with his father in the ministry that they have shared together. Matthew 7, 16, Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruit. And I am sure Paul was aware of this. No false appearances of sincerity, but genuine not like the seed on rocky or thorny ground, but the seed in the good soil. Timothy, genuine, the real deal, 
the real McCoy, authentic. A man of genuine service to Christ and of others in humility, thinking not only of himself, but for the needs of others too. But only and up to including things like prison, torture, and death. And I suppose it's needless to ask a Christian to go any further than that. In the leather, in the leather industry, there are different levels of quality in leather. For example, there are the greatest qualities of leather like top grain leather, full grain leather, and split grain leather. There are the lowest of qualities called genuine leather, bonded leather, and faux leather, which isn't even leather at all. In fact, there does exist not all but many items advertised and marketed under the label of genuine leather that don't even contain any real leather. Certain items marketed as being made of genuine le leather at best only contain a small percentage of actual leather and at the lowest quality in that. Just enough actual leather to have appearances of the real thing. Just enough of what's needed to fool most who don't know any better and at worst to fool themselves to think they are genuine. Are we still talking about leather? An expert, however, can quickly tell you what is real quality and what is not. When an item made of genuine leather is exposed to the same harsh elements, the same trials and tribulations as something made from top grain leather, the genuine leather does not last. Genuine leather, something bearing the name of the real thing to get people to believe that it is, but in many cases isn't even worthy of the name. Only portraying, pretending and masquerading as a real thing underneath, it has very little, if any, of the real deal. Timothy was not that kind of genuine. Like a label or a name used for marketing gimmicks, but genuine, authentic, through and through. When the Ephesian church needed a pastor, Paul sent Timothy to teach and encourage them. Timothy shared much of Paul's life in ministry. He was also sent to other churches like Corinth when Paul saw that there was a need. He could be trusted. By all appearances, it even seems that in Paul's last imprisonment, when he was likely in the infamous Mamertine prison, Timothy came to Paul which would possibly have endangered Timothy's life, but he did so to once again meet the needs of Paul before his death, which Paul seems to have known at that point was imminent. Timothy may have even witnessed Paul's execution. After Paul's death, Timothy went back to the church in Ephesus and he led the church there. And in the year 97, Emperor Domitian he led the second great persecution against Christians in Rome. And when the Ephesian pagans were celebrating a feast called Catagogian, I probably butchered that term, but Timothy saw their pagan procession 
and he blocked their way and he severely rebuked them for their idolatry. His holy boldness angered the pagans and they attacked him with clubs and beat him and some accounts say that they stoned him, possibly both. And they, they beat him so badly that he died of his injuries two days later. Faithful to the end. Our last example, Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.25. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your mess messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him, then, in the Lord with all joy, and hold people like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to compensate for your absence and your service to me. Not a lot more is known about Epaphroditus outside of this passage, but in these six verses, we get so much of what a real man this guy was. And if you want just one example of what a real man is, if you want to know how a true man behaves and acts, here's your man. Verse 29 says, to hold men or people like him in high regard. They are the ones to be respected, not the social media influ influencers or our political heroes. They are not the definition or marks of a real man, unless they portray characters like this. Epaphroditus by Paul was referred to as a brother indicating the same spiritual family, as a worker, indicating that he had the same goals, as a soldier, indicating that they shared the same trials. This was unity in Christ. If you remember, that is how chapter 2 started, the call to unity. Here's our four examples. Here's what it looks like. Unity in Christ. These ordinary men, yet exemplary men, aside from Christ, who was not ordinary, but the other three are, they did not have an extreme faith. There is no such thing as an extreme faith. I don't think there is. The term extreme faith or extreme Christian is perhaps nothing more than an adjective created by weak men to make themselves feel better about their current state, to numb their conscience enough to get by. There is only a Christian faith, and it can only be called a Christian faith if it is real. These men are merely a few examples of many of what it looks like to be real. Whether in prison or free, to Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, it didn't matter because their character was established. 
their minds resolved ahead of time, their devotion to Christ and their willingness of service remains the same in freedom or in bondage, in life or in death. I want to give you two other brief examples of what genuine Christ-centered service looks like as well as what it does not look like. And both of these accounts have occurred less than 50 years ago. The Khmer Rouge soldiers burst into the room, brandishing their weapons and shouting insults and threats. When the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia in 1975, thousands of Christians were killed. Children were even thrown before alligators so the soldiers could save their bullets. None of the members of the small congregation moved. An officer walked up to the pastor, grabbed the Bible he had been reading, and threw it on the floor. We will let you go, he said, but first you must spit on this book of lies. Anyone who refuses will be shot. Another soldier grabbed a man by the arm and forced him forward. Father, please forgive me, he prayed as he knelt where the Bible had fallen and spat lightly on it. Okay, you can go. Then the officer pointed to a woman. She too knelt by the Bible. She moistened the Bible just enough to please the officers. A teenage girl suddenly stood up and walked towards the Bible. Tearfully, she knelt and picked up the Bible, taking the hem of her dress and wiping it clean. What have they done to your word, she said. Please forgive them. The soldier lowered his revolver to the back of her head and squeezed the trigger. The Christians who were initially allowed to leave were also shot. Their actions did little to save them. In China, shoot them and we will let you live. The pastor had struck a deal with the communists in the Chinese prison where they were being held but the two Christian girls standing before him were resolved not to renounce their faith. A fellow prisoner who watched the terrible scene described their faces as pale but beautiful beyond belief, infinitely sad but sweet. They were determined to face death rather than turn their backs on Christ. The pastor reasoned, why should all three of us die? If I kill you and they let me live, then I can continue the work among the churches. The girl spoke to him softly. Before you shoot us, we want to thank you for all you have meant to us. You led us to Christ, baptized us, and gave us Holy Communion. May God reward you for all the good you have done. You also taught us that Christians are sometimes weak and commit terrible sins, but they can be forgiven. When you regret what you are about to do to us, don't despair like Judas, but repent like Peter. And remember that our last thoughts of you are not of hatred and anger, but of love and forgiveness. We, we all pass through times of darkness. We die gladly. But the pastor's heart was already hardened, and he shot them. No sooner had they fall into the ground, then the communist guards put him against the wall for immediate execution. As they shot him, no one heard words of repentance, only the sound of screaming. 
Matthew 6, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. If you are here and you are not already resolved, then today is the day to ensure that you step up and you train yourself in the Christian disciplines of taking up your cross and whatever that means or what that looks like for you and what God has in store for you. Not so that you can be prepared to live it out, but so that it is lived out today already. I'm going to close with these two quotes here that I, that I find near and dear to my heart. And if the song team wants to come up now at this time, the first quote is from an unnamed imprisoned Vietnamese pastor. We have learned that suffering is not the worst thing in the world. Disobedience to God is worse. And Richard Wormbrand, and if you don't know his name, Google him. Buy one of his books, read it, and then come talk to me about it. I would love to hear your thoughts. But he says, jail is no hindrance to a useful Christian life. Will it require imprisonment before we realize and start actively doing what we are now already free to do? Thank you.